Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm Dave Homewood and today we're coming to you from the Pioneer Aero Restorations Limited hangar with Paul McSweeney. Hi Paul. Hi Dave, how are you? Good, good. Now, you're quite well known in the uh, Warbird world for being uh, a company that has restored a lot of interesting aircraft, particularly uh, P-40s, but there's been the LA-9 and Yak and various other things. So, um, But we'll start off taking you back to the beginning. How did you first get into aviation? Um, I suppose that my, my first sort of interest in aviation, according to my parents, was when I was less than one years old, got tied to a kite, and the neighbour tried to tried to fly me. <laughs> uh, that, that was a, a somewhat aborted attempt from all accounts, I can't say I remember it myself. Um, but I, I don't know why, but I've always been interested in, in aircraft and in, uh, in machinery, I suppose. Um, and I, was, uh, I grew up around the Waikato area, and um, never really had a hell of a lot to do with aeroplanes, and I think uh, I saw joining the Air Force uh, as a route to getting out of Morrinsville, which was a really good place to get out of in the 70s. Right. So um, when I, I left school and, and, and joined the Air Force, went straight from school. So uh, yeah, that was the, the start of things, I suppose. Okay, uh, what year did you join up? Uh, I joined up in, in 1976 as a, as a boy entrant. Yep. So I did, uh, did a year at, at Sprague School in Blenheim and and then the following year finished uh, the MEX course, so that would have been April 77, and was posted to Ahakia. Okay, okay. So um, they would have had some quite interesting things going on at Ahakia in the 70s, I suppose? Yeah, they did. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I, I wanted to go there was to work on jets. Yep. Um, the Skyhawk was an attraction at that stage. So, of course, I got sent to 42 Squadron and worked on Dakotas and Devons, <laughs> uh, which was an initial disappointment, but uh, I think that was the, the grounding for my sort of love of old aeroplanes, if you like. Right. Um, there seemed to be something pretty neat about getting covered in oil from head to toe, and uh, I never really um, envied the guys working at 75 Squadron much after that at all, really. <laughs> cool. So, um, did you get to fly in the old Dakotas? And uh, I did. I did a, a couple of flights in Dakotas, um, but they were just going out as, as I got there. So right. when I got to 42 Squadron, as well as the Dakotas, we also had the first of the Andovers. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so it was, it was quite, a, quite an interesting time, and, and, and also at the same time, we handled all the air movements, um, traffic effectively, so anything transiting through Ahakia um, came through 42 or was looked after by a 42 squadron crew, um, so we saw the Harvards coming through on the last Wiseau, yep. which I think was, or the last northern Wiseau, which I think was Kai Tyre or somewhere like that in 77. Okay. Um, so that, you know, that was all, all quite interesting. Um, and, you know, like I say, the transition to Andovers was uh, anything but smooth, so it was, uh, was different to be involved with that as well. So what were the problems that they actually had with the Andovers? Um, there were, there were Lots of problems. Um, they'd been in storage for a, a long period before we got them. Yeah. Um, so we had crews pulling up the floors and pulling out birds' nests and, and things like that. 
and they, they also were a, a difficult aircraft I think to maintain yeah um, certainly compared to things like the friendships with the, which they're flying at Wigram at the same time the Andovers seemed to, to take a lot more maintenance right is that just because they were British or I think there was a bit of that but they were you know I won't say I won't say sophisticated but they had some some reasonably complex systems the kneeling gear and stuff like that right. um, which which gave trouble also, they, the Andover was a, a fairly small run of aircraft. I'm not sure how many were made exactly, yeah. but at that's the stage we had them, we were pretty well the only ones in the world operating them. Right. So spare parts became an issue, especially with the undercarriage and, and props and things like that. Um, and we seemed to get hold to, held to ransom by Doughty for, uh, for spares, which was never a good place to be. No. But at the same token, they were also really capable aircraft, weren't they? And, and, and they were capable. They were, were good aircraft for what we wanted them for, which was you know use in New Zealand and use up in the islands. Yep. Um, they, they were they were very good at that. Uh, and in, in a lot of respects, they were uh, better than the Dakota. Certainly, the, with the the rear lamp, uh, the ramp, and the clamshell door. Yeah. They they seemed to do the job pretty well. Um, and and they you know they hung around for a little while. So they obviously proved their worth. Yeah, yeah. So how long were you at um, 42 for? Uh, a little over 18 months, I think. Um, I, I went to um, to AMS and worked on Strike Masters. Yep. So I was on Team 2 at AMS in uh, 79. And that was just prior to, to doing my, my uh, fitters course, yep. technician's course, as it was then. Yep. Um, and then... Yeah, that was that was the end of the seven the seventies gone if you like. Right. Um, I also was one of the team that was contracted to field air to get the Dakotas going so they could fly away. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so we did that. That was just prior to going on tech school, so it would have been um, sort of mid seventy nine. Yep. Um, the Dakotas at that stage were in storage at the end of uh, the airfield at Ahakia There, sort of around by the old Met building. Yep. Um, and I think there was about five or six of us, and we worked for Field Air and uh, got them going, and then they, they flew away, never to be seen again. Okay. And they went off to South Africa? I'm not really sure where they went in the end. There was, <laughs> there was a whole lot of talk about them you know, going places and not going places and, and embargoes and that, and we just did the work and got paid for it and didn't, get worried, <laughs> didn't worry too much about the politics at that stage. That's right, right. Yeah. Okay, and so you went on to your uh, text course at Woodburn... Yeah, did text course at Woodburn, um, finished early 1980. Yep. Uh, got posted back to Ahakia um, and straight on to 75 Squadron. So that was a, right. a bit of a change of pace from where I'd been uh, previously. Okay. So you would have been there for the big 1981 air show, I guess. I was there for the 1981 air show, yeah. I was uh, at, at Ahakia then on 75 Squadron then, I think. I'm trying to think. Um if I wasn't on seventy five squadron, then I'd, I'd just move from seventy five. But yeah. yeah, 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 that was that was a you know a great show, um, exciting times when we used to play with everybody before yeah. we, you know, had a our circle of friends became smaller, so somewhat smaller <laughs> after that. So yeah, I, I was there um, and and did a, a few overseas exercises. Did uh, Cope Thunder up in the Philippines, which was uh, you know a, a great exercise. Yeah. And, and it was something new. It was we went up on the first one. We sort of blazed the trail for the rest. Right. Okay. Um, 
I mean, at this stage, I was an LAC, so I had absolutely nothing to do with it other than went along for the ride. So it was, it was a really good place to be, to be honest. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also did a, a couple of trips to Singapore and Southeast Asia and, and up in there. So that was good. And, and a few trips to Aussie. So. Okay, so what do you remember specifically about these trips? What, what sort of flying were they doing and that sort of thing? Um, I, I mean, I suppose the, the clearest memory I have of the flying that was, was going on was sitting in on a, a Cope Thunder debrief and watching the old OHP slides as they were then. Yep. The, the, the American guy at the front would flick up the slides of of the rail yard that they'd bombed and where all the bombs had landed and uh, and all the you know the different squadron bombs were were in different colours. Okay. And they, they, so they they had two or three American squadrons up there at the same time. You know, one from Okinawa, one or two from Okinawa, and, and one from mainland USA. And uh, they were, you know, putting these OHP slides up, and there'd be one bomb, you know, within a hundred metres of the target, and the rest were up in the hills or in the weeds. When they put the slide for for the Kiwis up there, the place was just obliterated. Wow! On the, on the slide, there was no room for any more red dots. So it was, it was, it showed you, uh, you know, how capable the aeroplanes were, and and how good our our guys were at, at delivering the ordnance compared to some of these other guys who were flying F-15s and and supposedly far more capable aeroplanes. Well, and that's all pre-Kahu as well. That was all pre-Kahu, yeah. Um, which I suppose, you know, my way of thinking, I, I'm not keen on avionics, that's all just bullshit. Uh, computers and helicopters are never going to catch on, I don't reckon. Um, <laughs> so it, it just proved you didn't need the stuff. Mm. You, you know, these guys were doing it without Kahu and... To be fair, you know, as well as the, the pilots delivering the goods, the, the ground crew that we had up there, um, you know, we had we had less people, we had no gear compared to what the Americans had, um, and I don't think we missed a sortie the whole time, right. you know, which was was pretty impressive. And that the, you know, if you if you weren't at the end of the runway, sort of thirty seconds or so before your allotted slot, you missed. That was your lot gone. So it was all it was all pretty tight. Okay. Um, and, and the Kiwis, you know, really acquainted themselves well. And I don't think, um, even at that stage, the Americans could believe what was happening with the gear that we had, which is a theme that, you know, is carried right through from, you know, World War Two right through. The Kiwis scrounged and begged and borrowed and had nothing and, and you know, did fairly well with what they had. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so it was, it was a, I mean, it was a good team and it was a good, it was a good thing to be involved with. Right, yeah. right. There must have been a lot of respect then that built up for the Kiwis from all the other nations there. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, my memory's not that good, but I, I think we were the only outsiders there, if you like. The okay. the other, uh, the other ones involved with that first Cape Thunder, I think, were were all American. Right. Um, but yeah, they they, they certainly uh, didn't take long, and if they knew you're a Kiwi, you sort of got a pat on the back and or, or you know yell at you. Yep. Uh, and and when Clark Air Force Base was an exciting place to be um, back in the early 80s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before Mount Pinatubo did its thing. Oh, of course, it got covered up, didn't it? It got covered up in ash. And, and, and also, at that stage, it was still an American base. It wasn't a Filipino base as such. Uh, although I believe the base, the hierarchy of the base were, were Filipinos, but um, the whole thing was run by the Americans still. Okay, okay. So had you done any um, exercises with the Blunties when you were with them? No, look, I, the only time I spent um, on Strike Masters was in AMS, so uh, on Team 2, and then when I was in the Skin Bay 
later on right. working on them. So didn't actually participate in any exercises at all with the Strike Masters. Okay. And, and didn't have, uh, I didn't do any time on the flight line with them either. Right, okay, yep. Yeah. So yeah, after, after 75 Squadron, I had the opportunity to, uh, to shift across to AMS and work on the Avro 626. Right. We were sort of tapped on the shoulder and, and asked if I'd like to do that. And at that stage, I'd recently got married and thought it might be a good time to sp- spend some time at home and not so much time overseas. So um, as well as the, the prospect of getting the Avro back in the air, it was uh, the prospect of staying at home for more than two weeks at a time. So yeah. it was quite appealing. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, tell me about that project. Uh, what was it like when you started? And Well, I, I was, I, th- I think, number three on the team. Um, and at that stage, um, Warren Officer Jim Fordyce, Fordyce was, was running the show, and uh, Corporal Red Redman, Rene Redman was there, um, and I was number three. And I think at the same time I started, Peter Lowen also started. And um, <clears throat> so it was, a, it was a small team. We had absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, it, it was very political. I think in that the Air Force would throw manpower at it because I was, I think, still attached to 75 Squadron. Um, But there was no money for anything else. So everything we got, we begged, borrowed and scrounged, which, like I say, seems to be a theme of the whole Air Force Force career. Um, But, yeah, it was good. We we had a a section in, in AMS that we basically put a scrim wall around so people couldn't look in and we weren't in a fishbowl and uh, we just started pulling things to bits and fixing it up and that was my first real uh, foray into um, restoration really. Okay, so that actually belonged to the museum at that stage didn't it? Um, Look, I I think so, you know, again the politics of it didn't worry me at that stage, Um, I was just, you know, there doing a job and and it was good fun so... Um, we just did it, but it was all there was a lot of bullshit involved. Yeah. Um, there were certain things you couldn't say to the the press and the people that came in, and you had to say that everything had been donated, and and you were donating your time, and and uh, you know, it was it was it was a lot of nonsense. But I suppose that was what had to get done to get the aeroplane built. Right. Um, at that stage, we had to say that it was had been donated to the Air Force by Mr. Frogley, and um, I believe that's not the case. Oh right, okay. I, I believe that you know some money may have changed hands, right. but again, it was it was all sort of smoke and mirror stuff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know, the frustrating bit was that um, everyone wanted to know what we were doing and see what we were doing uh, at the expense of getting the job done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose the classic for that was we had to take the aeroplane uh, once to Auckland to a, a big air show in Auckland. Yeah. And once to Wigram for Prince Charles and Princess Diana when they toured. Okay. And when we took it to Christchurch, it literally got stuck down there for over a month. Oh, right. Because of transport issues and what have you. We couldn't. We got it down but couldn't get it back. So it was just nonsense like that that really interfered with building the aeroplane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, it had to be done, you know. The, so... Uh, he just sort of shut up and did it. So I guess taking it to an airshow like that might have actually raised a bit of <coughs> money for the museum, though, I suppose. Well, I think it was, you know, we had to get the public awareness on what was happening. Yeah. At that stage, the, the Air Force, I don't think, had really done anything like that before. You know, got an old aeroplane that was, 
you know, 50 years previous had been flying and, and, and thought about actually getting it back to flying, it was, it was the first time they'd done that. Yeah, yeah. Um, now that, now but, they but, do it but all I, the time. Yeah, but I yeah, well, <laughs> do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't think um, at that stage anyone, people knew how to treat it or to treat the team or, or anything. So right. it, was, it, was all, um, it was all a bit odd. Um, it was a, a hell of an interesting experience. And, uh, and to say I learned a lot is probably an understatement. But, um, well, how about on the mechanical side of it? What were the sort of main issues with getting it back, back into the air? Well, we, we had issues with the spars. Um, the spars were a, quite a complex sort of multi, multi-rolled bits of steel, if you like, that end up in a, a sort of hexagon shape. Yeah. And then they had caps that slid over those and it was all very tight fitting. Um, and from memory, one of the wings had been stored quite badly and had a bit of fertiliser sitting on it and it had rotted away the spar web itself. Oh, right. So effectively we had to pull the spar apart completely, which doesn't sound like a hard job, but when you had to pull it apart with the idea that everything was had to go, had to go back together so you couldn't wreck anything, it actually took a, a long time to do that. So we ended up making new spar webs, um, and this is the Royal We here. I didn't have a lot to do with that. We had a you know, team of machinists and guys like that who designed tooling for us. Um, but again, it was in their spare time. They donated their time. So sometimes it happened when you wanted, and sometimes it didn't. Right. Um, so yeah, it was that that was uh, an issue, and of course the engine was you know proved to be an issue and, and proved to be a a continuing issue after it was flying. Right, and what was the engine on that? <clears throat> it was a, a Cheetah 5. Right. So effectively the same as the Anson, but in a slightly lower powered version. Um, and the, the, the Cheetah 5 we had had a, had a broken crankshaft or cracked crankshaft. So, uh, it, you know, it, it raised its ugly head, uh, did a few hours flying and the, and the crack, you know, became apparent. Yeah. <clears throat> so they, they grounded it got some billets I think from from overseas and, and made new crankshaft and by then the decision was made not to fly it right. Uh, right. so yeah we, I was I was on that team um, from from the end of 81 until 84 early 84 when I was uh, posted to Auckland so when we uh, when I went on to the team I was told I'd be on there till the aircraft finished yeah. that didn't happen uh, I mean, part of the reason for that is that the aircraft took a lot longer than anyone had envisaged. Right. Um, it, uh, the comment was it from from uh, John Lanham, who flew it, was it flew like a big tiger moth. Okay. Unfortunately, it was a bit more complicated than a tiger moth to get together. And like I say, with the with the carting it around the country and the politics that that went on making it happen, it's it's a wonder it ever ever really flew at all. So um, by the time it flew, I was up here in Auckland on Five Squadron. But oh, really? um, I got to, I went down to Haku for the test flying, and I uh, got to fly in it up here in Auckland. So that was that was something pretty special. Great. Yeah, and it's unique as well, isn't it? It's the only one in the world. Yeah, it is the only one in the world. Um, the Shuttleworth had had at that stage a Tudor, which I think they've still got. Yeah. Which the six two six really is a derivative of the Tudor with the the third cockpit. Um, and it was a multi-role aircraft that was designed for third world countries like New Zealand and Uruguay and places like that, <laughs> where you could fit a stretcher or um, fit cameras and that in the back. So right. you could put a big um, 
downward facing camera in the back cockpit. Did you have all the drawings and everything for it? Uh, look, I don't think we had a hell of a lot. Um, we we basically reverse engineered everything. You know, we had we had an old one, you made a new one. Yeah. Um, and that, that's how it happened. I, I, I never recall having a lot of drawings. Um, we did have, on the school holiday breaks, if you like, we had engineering officers who weren't at uni came in and, and wrote a few books and came up with these uh, these publications. Okay. But um, original uh, original stuff, I don't think we had a lot from memory. Oh, right. okay. um, you know, we were fortunate. Jim Fordyce, who, who was running the team, had a, a huge wealth of experience in, in old aeroplanes. Yeah. Um, but truth be known, they weren't old aeroplanes when he was working on them. But <laughs> by the time I got to meet him, they were old aeroplanes. Yeah. So he was, he was a pretty experienced uh, guy, a warrant officer in the Air Force, who had an airframe background yeah. and um, was solely airframe at that stage. It was back during the old trade structure where you had airframes and engines and, and never the twain shall meet. Yep. And uh, Jim was very much an old framey. Clever, very clever guy, um, and a hell of a lot of fun to work with. Right. So uh, he sort of, he, never a dull moment with him around. Once or twice a day he'd blow his top and go off and chop the radio, the cord off the radio, the hanger radio, because he didn't like the music that was getting played or <laughs> something along those lines. So it was, it was pretty entertaining for us young fellas, really. Now, what about the flight that you had in it? What was that like? That was great. I mean, it was a, a, a beautiful Auckland day. And we do have those every now and then. <laughs> and um, we took off, uh, look, from, from memory, it was from Hobsonville. Yep. Um, and uh, at that stage, I was living on Forest Hill on the North Shore and had recently painted that my house roof so I could spot it from the air. Okay. Um, and when I, it wasn't until I flew over it, I realised what a bad job I'd done. <laughs> when, when I'd run out of paint and got the same colour, they weren't quite the same colour, but you could only see it from the air. So, yeah, we, it was a you know, 20, 25-minute flight, and it, it was a really graceful old girl. It, um, it, was, it was very stable in the air, and it was, it was just neat, yeah. Cool, cool. So, uh, and, and John Lanham flew it at that stage. Did you meet many uh, old veteran pilots and, and air crew that had flown in them? Did they sort of come in to look, see you guys? N- not a lot, I don't think, that had flown. There were a few that had flown in them, um, some that had trained in it. Um, to be honest, at that stage, I didn't really appreciate that fact. Yeah. Um, they were just a whole lot of old fellows who came in who were interfering with what we were trying to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also, again, at that stage, I was an LAC and, and corporal and that we weren't involved in the public relations side. In fact, we'd had it fairly carefully explained to us that we were to stay completely out of the public relations and when people came in, we were to sort of gravitate to the side and stay out of the way and shut up and not say anything. Right. So um, so we, I think we missed a, missed a bit of what went on there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we, it certainly was a, a, a bit of a, an attraction for the old boys, you know, and, and I think they saw, saw it as something pretty unique that the Air Force had had made the decision to restore this to flying. Yeah, it is actually pretty amazing, isn't it? It, it is. It? It's not something I don't think that's happened since. No. You know, so... Well, the only other thing I can think of is the Tiger Moth, which they got going again. Yeah, yeah. And that's a fairly basic aircraft to get going, so... That's right, and, and again, it's not, um, you know, the only one in the world sort of thing. So it's, um, it, w- it was a big decision by, by someone, and I can, I can fully understand the decision not to fly it now. Yeah. Uh, even though at the time... It, you know, we, we thought we'd spent 
a few years of our life getting it flying and for some bastard to make the decision to not to fly it was was not a good one but uh, I can understand where it came from yeah yeah and it does look good in the museum as well yeah it looks good in the museum and it'll look good for a, for a long time and and I think one of the benefits in having an aircraft that's been done to flying as a museum exhibit is it's going to be looking good for for years to come yeah you know yeah. With, with minimal maintenance yeah right and you mentioned that you went on to five squadron so what were you yeah i was um i was posted to to five squadron in 84 uh, onto orion's yeah uh, as a as an engine man at, at that stage and i think still today they decided that the you know the, on the bigger airframe uh, you were better off having engine and an airframe yep. rather than a combined trade. So I went on there as a sumpy, which was was quite interesting. Um, I hadn't had a lot to do with turbine engines, propellers, and things. So uh, I was I was fortunate. I think they did one engine course a year, one engine and propeller course a year. And the day I arrived at Five Squadron, there was one starting. Okay. So I basically went straight on to uh, to the course and spent my first six or seven weeks at five squadron on on course okay so by the time i i got to uh to the squadron i i knew it all <laughs> <laughs> so and, and then all of a sudden i saw one yeah so i had a hell of a good time at, at five Squadron. i thought it was a, a really good place to work um we had a, we had a lot of work when we were there we had a lot of problem with uh, propellers for the pretty well the whole time i was there propeller leaks and and other issues. Okay. Uh, had a really good small team again that, that everyone seemed to work you know well together. Um, and there was sort of that sense of purpose where you, you know you, you worked on the aeroplane not just because some nut wanted to fly it tomorrow and break it because there was a reason for doing that. You know, it was on search and rescue standby or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it was good. I uh, I did a fin castle in Australia while I was at Five Squadron. Right, right. Um, so we went over there, and unfortunately didn't win it. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, that was a that was a pretty good experience going on a fin castle. Yeah. It so. must have been uh, a good feeling for the squadron when people were rescued as well. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got there part way through the. The, the Rigel fit, or just at the end of the Rigel fit, where they'd done the first sort of avionics update, if you like, yeah. um, and it was was all quite new, and it was all um, at that stage sort of for New Zealand in any case state of the art stuff. Yeah. We we had the the UDS had been fitted, the infrared system, and um, it was a, you know it was a very capable aeroplane, and and I think that in a lot of respects was better than the factory ones that were coming out. Right. Um, and the case in point was the Canadian Aurora, where it, the aeroplane itself had basically the same capability, but if one station went down, you couldn't transfer the work to another station. Where our we, We'd maintained the tack rail, where the Canadians had their own little cubicles in the Aurora. Right. Um, so it was much easier for if one screen went down and one station went down to transfer that workload to someone else. Okay. So it was, was something that, that the Canadians and the Americans sort of looked at and went, ooh, that's, that's pretty good. Right. Okay. So, but, you yeah, know, it was, a, it was a, a good a good, uh, a good place to be, you know, and a, and a good time. Did you go on many flights with them, like out on searches? Or? No, look, I, I had a couple of flights in the P3s, um, but not, not didn't do a lot of flying, no. Right. 
did a bit of flying in Herks while I was there, which wasn't quite as attractive, I might add. A huge long flight up to the Philippines to um, change a propeller on a P3 via Townsville, and then we got to Townsville and found out we had to fly around Indonesian airspace because it was some sort of Indonesian holiday, so I had a, a 12 and a bit hour flight from Townsville to Clark, which is... <laughs> it wasn't wasn't the best flight in the world. No. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah. After that, um, I got out of the air force for a couple of years. Yep. Decided, for some strange reason, and I'm, I still don't know why, that I'd like to try something different. So I went farming kiwi fruit for a couple of years. Oh right. Uh, it was long enough to uh, to learn that I wasn't a, a an orchardist bum, and um, so I sort of. Did a couple of years struggling away at that, and it was struggling. It was pretty hard work, and for for very little return, and working in the cold, and yeah. um, then jumped back into the air force at a harkier again. Okay. So uh, rejoined in in eighty eight, early eighty eight, and uh, went straight into the skin bay at a harkier. So spent uh, from eighty eight through to ninety two, mid ninety two in the skin bay there. Yeah. Um, and again, that was exciting times. We had um, the, the Stripe Masters were, were going out. Yep. The Mackies were coming in. And also we had, uh, we were going through the, the, the end of the Kahu fit at that stage. So right. all the problems were, were rearing their ugly heads. And the, and the main one that I was involved in with at that stage was the cooling. Um, you cram all this fancy avionics gear in where you wanted, but... To cool it was another issue, right. and um, they had a lot of problems with the early failures in the avionics gear. So we got involved with um, with putting scoops in and cutting scoops and coming up with uh, with solutions to to problems that people had made. Um, and the other the other problem that that reared its head early on was the fact that uh, there was far too much weight in the nose and it was overstressing the nose. So um, we, we had issues with the, the noses breaking, right. <clears throat> and there were, you know other structural problems with the A4s at that stage. They um, recently were, were, were going through the re-winging program, yep. um, and um, <clears throat> so we had we had aircraft that had been re-winged, aircraft that hadn't, and uh, also Kiwi Red. Yeah, uh, we got a, a fair bit of work from Kiwi Red. There was a, a period of time during that where. The fins kept falling off. The, the top of the fins kept falling off, um, and it ended up to be the, the number four man who sat in the box, and his fin got fin tip got buffeted around and knocked around. And every flight they came back, that was bent off at an odd angle. <laughs> so we we um, were involved with coming up with a, a new fin tip for the aeroplane uh, and new doublers to uh, to try and increase the load. And it wasn't till right at the end of it. That we discovered that the fin tips weren't actually breaking from any sort of buffeting from the aeroplane; they were actually melting. Oh, right. Yeah. So, oh, okay. so it was like a, a revelation to us. Um, myself and another guy did a trip up to Air New Zealand to talk fiberglass and that with the guys up there, and they said, "You know, what sort of resin are you using?" Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a chippy, had nothing to do with fiberglass. And he said, well, I guarantee you're using a low temperature resin and the resin's probably melting. Oh, okay. And we thought, well, that can't be happening. So we went back to a here and we stuck um, temperature sensitive tapes 
on the on the fin tips, and sure enough, they were getting up to about 80 degrees C. Wow! And uh, at 80 degrees C, the, the resin we were using had no strength at all. Right. So once we started making them out of high temp resin, the whole problem went away. But unfortunately, we'd come up with all these other solutions to problems <laughs> that weren't there by then. Um, so it was quite a pressure time because you know Kiwi Red had to have that many aeroplanes every day they were going out. Well, wow, that's that's a really interesting little story there. I've yeah. never heard that one. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, it was a it was a bit of a sort of everyone. I mean, almost ended up with egg on their face. We'd, we'd devise these brilliant solutions to problems we didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> but um, quite a few of the fins on the A4s, that the, the top of the fins are are pretty well worn out from people drilling on and off doublers and putting new fin tips and that the holes just got bigger and bigger and bigger and (laughs) and then we discovered the real reason for it oh amazing um, and and we had you know other things we had a spate of aileron hinge failures where the aircraft would come back minus the outer half of the aileron and uh, and generally the pilot didn't even know that uh, didn't appear to affect the handling characteristics of the aeroplane so we'd get in there and we'd put a new aileron hinge bracket on and think, you know, the thing would go flying again. So, right. um, Stripe Masters, we, we didn't have a whole lot to do with. Um, the guys on Team 2 were pretty good. They, they generally looked after themselves. They had a, a few ex, ex-Skin Bay guys over there. Um, so at the time, the time I got to, first got to Skin Bay in 1988, Ian McClelland was um, re-sparring one of the strike masters I think it was the only aircraft that got done in the end right so he fitted a complete new center section spar through the fuselage okay um, and I think that's the aircraft that's now down at the museum so it's got zero fatigue life because it's got a set of new wings on it as well oh right what a pity that's the one that's not going to fly that's the one that's never going to fly <laughs> and it's the best one in the world yeah so yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah that's interesting so um, I had also well, when I was in Skin Bay at Harker I had the opportunity to go to Pensacola in Florida for a couple of weeks wow. so supposedly on a structural repair course and we just went over there and walked around and looked at what they were doing and um, yeah they were they were doing some great stuff um, and they were doing some really bad stuff it was it was quite funny okay. so, um, we we had uh, <clears throat> like I say it was as as a, a almost a follow-up to the re, Skyhawk re-winging we'd had a, a guy over in the states for quite a while seeing how the, the Americans made their wings and he set up a re-winging facility down at Woodburn and we'd gone over as almost a bit of a follow-up to that. Yeah. Um, we walked around the place and learned a little bit and, like I say, met a few people and okay. it, was, uh, it was quite good. So, uh, yeah, the, I mean, pressure bulkhead, um, front pressure bulkhead repairs was, a, was another big one on the A4s. We did a, a couple of those over successive Christmases Um, so the aircraft came in the whole nose got taken off all the gear came out of the nose and we completely replaced the the pressure bulkhead um, which was just wearing out through fatigue cycles pressurisation cycles Um, nose longeron repairs was another one we did quite a few nose longeron repairs generally the the wheel would go up slightly off centre and um, the axle would, would catch on the longeron and tear the longeron or make a pretty good groove in it. Okay. We had a couple of instances where the gear went up and didn't want to come down. Um, I think I think finally came down, and, but uh, made a hell of a mess of the longeron. Yeah. So, uh, 
So wow. that was all. That was all good, you know. Um, so I did um, mid '92. I I then went from <coughs> from there to the historic flight. <coughs> oh right. So the um, down at Wigram. No, at that stage, the PDS and CFS and the historic flight transferred from Wigram to Ahakia. Those are '93. '93 was. That's it? when I transferred. Up. Okay. Oh, yeah. well, that's when I did. Okay. Yeah. But '93 it would have been. <laughs> I know it was the middle of winter. <coughs> so. Um, yeah, I went over to the historic flight and spent two and a half years there working on the Harvard and the Tiger. Okay. So, um, again, that was a, a funny place to be. A lot of the people that came up from Wigram didn't want to come up from Wigram. Um, no. So there was, there was sort of pluses and minuses about being there. But being on the historic flight, we were insulated from the rest and, and pretty well out of the politics. So uh, yeah. it wasn't too bad. Yeah. So, you know, two and a half years... Just working on the Harvard and the Tiger Moth and tripping around a little bit with them was uh, was was a bit of a holiday, really, to be honest. Yeah, that always seemed to me when I was at Wigram, yeah. um, I had a fair bit to do yeah. with them, and um, it always seemed to me to be the sweetest flight on the on the whole base. Yeah, everybody that worked there seemed happy. And yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting. Again, it's one of those places um, where the manpower doesn't appear to be taken into account in the budget yeah. and um, there's some discussion at the moment of making the historic flight civilian yeah. and they're saying well you know it only costs the Air Force this much to run well I look at the value that they say you know this is what it costs you the Air Force to run there's no way there's two people's wages in that figure so right. you know where, where are those where, where's that going who's paying for those Mind you, it must come out of CFS because it's the historic flight of Central Flying School, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but it seems to get forgotten. Um, So someone will say, oh, you know, when the civilians take over, it's now cost, it's gone from costing 30,000 a year to run to, you know, 230. Well, that's probably the the real cost that we're paying at the moment, anyhow, so the Air Force is paying. Yeah, true, yeah. So yeah, I did uh, did two and a half years there with Pedro Comeski. Oh, right, I remember Um, him, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Another interesting character, you know, sort of a lot of names you can mention as you go through your Air Force career, people that that you bump into. Um, But um, yeah, that that was that was a good time. But I sort of decided about then uh, because I had broken service. I I while I was at the historic flight, decided that you know maybe I should try and stay and do twenty years and get a pension. Yeah, and. the more I thought about that, the more I thought that the historic place wasn't the place to be, to stay on. It was the place you went just before you got out or if you wanted to sit there forever. And I thought, well, okay, so um, at that stage I'd, I'd been in discussion with a guy from 14 Squadron who wanted to go to historic flight, so effectively uh, we did a swap. Okay. So I went uh, in 96, went across to 14 Squadron um, on, onto the Mackies. Yep. Um, and that, that was that was quite different. Uh, at that stage, I was I was a sergeant. I'd, I'd been promoted while I was in Skin Bay, and went across there. So, you know, again, it was a, a good place to be, an exciting place to be. We they'd recently canned the falcons' roosts, um, so I didn't do any uh, any exercises while I was on 14 Squadron. Not with the aircraft, in any case. Yeah. We did a few team building, come adventure training exercises, and left the aeroplanes behind, yep. um, and they were probably the best ones to be on. Really, um, I, I also while I was on um, PDS, 
I did bar manager on a couple of wise owls oh, yes, with yep, the yep. trainers. So um, we went to Nelson and uh, and Wakatani, which were uh, which were quite tr- good trips, and and also the Mount Maunganui, in fact. So uh, good fun those exercises. Aren't yeah, they? And, and and being bar manager, of course, had the the, the best end of the deal, really. <laughs> so um, so that that was that was good and bad. It was interesting to see. Uh, some of the, the personalities that were getting trained at PDS when I went across to 14 Squadron and some of those, the young guys came across as well. So right. it was uh, interesting to sort of see their progress or yeah. lack of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I did, um, I, I can't remember, it must have been three years at 14 Squadron on the Mackies. Okay. Um, so why did they can the Falcons roost exercise? Uh, it, it all came about um, after the engine failure they had on the one at, uh, at Whangarei. Yeah. And effectively, the airfields that they'd been using or they wanted to use for Falcons Roost were marginal for the Mackies. Um, the, the, I, I think the, air, the, the people who ran the airfields couldn't guarantee the cleanliness and, and that, right. so uh, they, we, we sort of wound our heads in and withdrew into our shells a bit there, I think. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was you know it was it was disappointing, but not unexpected. Yeah. Um, and you know we we continued to have problems with the Mackies all the way through their service. Really, for those of us that have worked on Strike Masters and and were glad to see the Strike Masters go because something new was arriving, it didn't take long whenever I wanted the Strike Masters back. They yeah. they uh, were a reliable little aeroplane compared to the Mackie. And the, you know, the Mackie may have been more capable and may have had more up-to-date avionics, but I think its utilisation rate wasn't as good as the as the Strike Masters. Right. They look cool, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly I liken it to to owning a Ferrari or having a Ferrari. It's sort of nice to have and nice to drive, yeah. but you better hope you've got enough money to pay someone else to fix it, exactly, because yeah. they they're not the nicest aeroplanes to work on. Um, and uh, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't long through the the, the purchase, the, the sort of acquisition, and the initial flying of them when we found out that what the Italians said and what they did were were two different things. Yeah. Um, a lot of the mods that the Australians had had battled with were their three two sixes. I think they had um, hadn't been embodied in in our, in our later model aircraft. Wow. So. You know, when I, I went to Australia on a, an ANZAC exchange, and I'm not sure when that was, um, that was while I was in Skin Bay, and I bought back four big books of, of all the mods that the Australians had suggested to the Italians. Yeah. And when we got our aircraft, very few of them had ever been carried out. Okay. So um, it's, a, it's sort of the old adage you, you don't buy things off people who can't speak English, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I did remember. I do remember that there was a big team of Italians on the base that yeah. were constantly re- doing repairs and. Yeah, we, I mean, we had we had lots of issues, and, and they were they were silly things that, um, I mean, I, I you know, I don't know where the fault lay exactly, but um, I mean, we, we were supposed to have a, a Rolls Royce rep and a uh, an Air Mackie rep on base for something like twelve months or eighteen months, and I think they were there for four or five years in the end. Yeah. So they, they were there for a lot longer. Um, part of the problem was that that the 
the other air forces that flew these aeroplanes, which were primarily the Italians, when they had a problem, the aircraft just went back to Mackie and they wrote out a cheque, yeah. which is not the Kiwi way of doing it. No. And um, so when the, you know, the Italians would come up with this, I'd just send it back to the factory. The Kiwis couldn't, uh, wouldn't wear that one. No. Um, and we did a, you know, a lot of the repairs and a lot of the stuff that happened, uh, certainly while I was in the skin bay, it was we designed the repair sent it off to Mackie and we faxed it through at that stage and then generally you'd come in the next morning have a fax on the fax machine. Your the exact drawing you'd done yep. had been transposed onto a, a Mackie drawing, you know, tech drawing paper with the title block on the bottom with an approved stamp on it. Right. And uh, you know, you had to go through that every time. So it, uh, you could see what had to happen and the the book said you had the book in front of you, it said do this. Yeah. But um, because of the sort of the warranty, I suppose, everything had to get ticked off and approved, so it was quite frustrating, some of that. Yeah, yeah. Frustrating for everybody, not you know, not just us wielding the spanners, I suppose. Yeah. But, right. You know, there were certainly times early on in the piece where, the, you know, the air crew would toss a coin to see who was going flying in the one or two aeroplanes that were available that day. Wow. So, you know, sometimes the utilisation was pretty poor. There was a fleet of 18 or something, wasn't it? We had 16, I think, or 18, yeah, yeah. not really sure. That's pretty poor. Isn't it? <laughs> it is poor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but to be fair, as they were coming online, you know, initially we we got them in batches of three, I think. So at oh, some yeah. stages there are only six, three or six or whatever yeah. available. Yeah, true. Um, and you know, I was never on the squadron at that stage, and I imagine it would have been really difficult when they had the Mackies and the Blunties. You know, yeah. um, everyone would have wanted to fly the fly the Mackies, and no one would have wanted to fly the Blunties, and you know, so. But they were a yeah, a, a difficult aeroplane, really, and I think uh, overly complicated for what we wanted. Yeah. But um, the reasons they were purchased are, are beyond me. I just did as I was told about them. Complained about it a lot, but did what I was told. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was how it went. Yeah, oh well, that's another one of those Labour, yeah. Labour government um, decisions to buy them, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if it's a government decision or it was a... You know, I'm sure it was influenced by someone in defence... Yeah, and uh, and you know maybe they made the right call, and maybe they made the right call. I'm not sure what else was available at the time, and we ended up with a Mackie, and we we grizzled about it. What was the alternative? Was yeah. it something worse? Yeah. So, in, in hindsight, I would have thought a fleet of L39s would have been really good. Yeah, yeah. I suppose at that stage, though, I mean the the whole communist bloc had only just sort of started. Yeah, to come I, down. I, I don't think we were still talking to the to the Czechs and the Russians at no. that stage. So. Yeah. So it probably wasn't um, wasn't in the picture. No. So where did you go next? Uh, I went to AMS. Oh yeah. Um, working on Mackies again, doing the the uh, IRAM servicings, which was the you know the big servicing on the Mackie. So the wings came off and everything everything got pulled apart, stuck on a shelf and checked and then put back together. Yeah. Um, seemed like a an inordinate amount of work to be honest. Um, and uh, didn't really enjoy that at all. Didn't didn't like um, didn't like doing the uh, the in-depth servicings on the Mackies. I, it was almost a pointless exercise. Like I say, stuff would come off, go on the shelf, sit there for six months or three months, and then get put back on again. And it it, uh, it was a funny place to be. It was um, I got promoted to flight sergeant while I was there, and ended up running the team, running the the Mackie team, and. Uh, was only there for a, a short period of time as, as the flight sergeant there when uh, 
when the bitch decided to, to get rid of the strike wing. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's conjecture now about whether the Mackies actually should have stopped flying. Um, but at that stage it was a bit hard to see the wood from the trees because everyone was in fits of despair and yeah. hands were being thrown in the air. And <clears throat> so it was, a, was sort of about that stage and I'd, um, I'd approached the, the powers that be at Wellington about, you know, are you going to let me do 20 years or not? And they'd never given me an answer. And at that stage I'm on 16 years since I rejoined. And uh, when they said we want some some voluntary redundancies, I thought, shit, this is me, you know. Yeah. I've, I've been here, been here too long, getting cynical, and um, and needed to move on, and 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 had been there too long, really. Yeah. Um, so I was, I think, very fortunate that I was one of the one of the few flight sergeants picked. I, I think at that stage there were. I was told 24 flight sergeants said, pick me, pick me, and I think they picked three of us in, right. in, in, in my trade, so it's quite fortunate. Yeah. So the whole you know, DJ2 thing was a, was a period of, of upheaval, um, but I think um, from the Ahakia point of view was handled fantastically. Um, they had a, a team of, of very, very good people there that were assigned to, to look after the, the release and uh, led by Mark Brunton, and they did a, a fantastic job. Um, I don't think it was quite as well managed as some of the other bases, um, but we saw it, at, I suppose it being at a hockey at the time, thought that seeing the strike wing was, was getting hammered, that, that it was an Ahaki problem, not an Air Force problem almost. Yeah. So we didn't care what was happening at the other bases. So. Actually, that was the same feeling when Wigram was closing down. It seemed like no one else gave a shit about it. That's just right, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. We, all, we all felt really strongly about that. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's exactly the same thing, you know. Um, well, in fact, to a lesser extent, really just getting rid of a, the strike wing as opposed to closing down a whole base. Yeah. But, I mean, that was the essence of the base at Ahakia, yeah. was the strike wing. And, yeah. and anyone that said anything different, you know, hadn't been there long, I don't think. True. Um, so no, we um, so yeah, I was I was picked at that stage to uh, to go, and was very happy about that. And then the, the sort of dawning realization: shit, what do I do now? <laughs> well, like I say, you know, um, Mark Brunton and his, his team did a did a fantastic job. And uh, basically, when we had found out we were, had been selected for DJ two, we were posted to education flight at Ahakia. So there was a you know group of us went down there, and we went through all sorts of training for um, writing CVs, doing interviews, all that sort of niff-naff stuff that most of us have never heard of, let alone thought of before. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so that was that was a bit of an eye-opener, and it was actually while I was there, Mark came in one day and handed me a fax. So I got a fax from this guy in Auckland who wants someone to go to Auckland and you know look after his aircraft business, and, and it's you. And, uh, and I said to Mark at the time, bugger off, I'm not going to Auckland, you know. And um, he said to me, well, look, the Air Force will give you transport to go up and check it out. So you've got nothing to lose. Yep. So I went, oh, okay. So uh, I sort of I came up and, and had a look and spoke to Garth, who, who owned the, the business, and the rest is history from there, I suppose. It's, uh, right. Okay, so you've been here as, as soon as you got out of the yeah, Air Force? Yeah, I, I basically uh, I came up here and... Uh, November 2001 I started here okay. <clears throat> um, and I've been here ever since. So, uh, 
So how long had this place been going before then? It was fairly new. I Look, it was, it was it started in in uh, nineteen ninety two. Oh, right. Um, as Pacific Aircraft. Yep. And uh, Charles Charles Darby and Jim Pavitt started it. They had a an industrial unit in East Tamaki at that stage, and had come up with a sort of audacious plan to to rebuild Kitty Hawks from from next to nothing. Yeah. And uh, no one had, at that stage, no one had ever done that with a Kitty Hawk before, and it you know literally couldn't be done. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't do it. <laughs> and. Um, you know, Charles had been playing with Kitty Hawks and, and that for a long time, and had a you know, huge amount of contacts. And um, so they started this business, and they started off with one Kitty Hawk, and then got another one, and, and another one. And you know, unfortunately, through uh, you know a series of circumstances, they they ceased trading, and uh, I think it was '96. Yeah. And at that stage, Charles and and Garth had, had ended an agreement to to rebuild a Kitty Hawk. Uh, CAG, yes, yep. and um, when when Pacific Aircraft closed its doors, effectively, Gar said, "Well, I still want my airplane built. How, you know, how am I going to make this happen?" So he figured that he would uh, buy the assets of the business. Didn't buy the business itself, bought the assets, and then opened up his own business, which was Pioneer Aero Restorations, right. to to carry on. And at that stage, it was Gar's intention to to finish his aircraft and and dispose of the assets and I think he you know he was in business for a little while and, and then picked up more work and picked up a bit more work and a bit more work and um, I think it sort of um, ended into a joint venture with Avspex um, and things had grown sort of out of all proportion and at that stage um, they had shifted from East Tamaki out here to Ardmore yeah. And Garth had decided that uh, he wanted someone out here to, to, to manage his interests, um, and uh, and and that person was me, as it turned out. Right. So when I arrived, we had a, a joint venture with Avspex, um, and it, it was it was a, a challenging sort of thing. Uh, I was the new boy on the block, effectively, and. Um, it, it took me uh, a little while to get my head around what was required, what Garth was after, and um, so we just we just sort of carried on. Unfortunately, the the Avspecs thing didn't work out, um, and that was a was a business reason it didn't work out, and um, so we split up in 2002, end of 2002, I think uh, that sort of fell apart, yeah. and uh, and Warren and his crew uh, built a hangar across the other side and moved over there. And, and um, we sort of continued on. Um, we took we took one project. Warren took another project. So there was a, a fairly clear sort of split. Yeah. So you know, as far as, as that sort of thing goes, it was as good as could be hoped. And, and you guys have remained friends and everything. Have you? Yeah. Well, the, you know, there, there was a bit of um, light-hearted animosity, I suppose. Uh, at the end of the day, we're we're competitors. Yeah. So um, it's hard to be competitors and friends, yeah. um, but we've got a, a good working relationship with Avspecs, and, and, and we always have, I think. Yeah. You know, um, but it, there was uh, a few years of awkwardness, I suppose, yeah. um, and it had to be. I mean, it had to be a clean break, uh, otherwise there was no point in going there, was it? No. So um, yeah, they finished off the uh, the P40 for Jerry Yagan, yeah. and uh, and we carried on and built the wings for for Judy Pay. 
Right. So that was like a, a clear, a clear break. So after the the split with Avspecs, we uh, we increased the staff numbers slightly here because it, you know, obviously at that stage we did you know, half the staff for ours and half for Avspecs. So um, we went through sort of periods of restructuring and and uh, you know taking people on and yeah. moving people along and um, it got all a bit untidy. But you know Garth was um, was adamant, and one one of the reasons he wanted me in here. Um, rightly or wrongly thought that with my Air Force background uh, I'd be able to impart some structure into it. I'm not sure that ever happened. Uh, <laughs> but we we decided uh, fairly early on on the piece that the best way to do that was to go part 145. So to get the, the, the company a, a maintenance uh, authority from civil aviation. And uh, so we went ahead and did that and it was... Uh, was a reasonably long-winded process. Um, one of the reasons was no one, I don't think, in the world that was playing with old aircraft at that stage had ever thought about getting that sort of certification. It was something you steer clear of. Um, so we went down the road, and, and, and what it did, as, as it, we evolved through the process, it gave, gave us some structure in the business. So it meant that, you know, worst-case scenario, I... I died in my bed one night, someone could come in the next day and pick up the book and say this is what has to be done today and, right. and carry on. Right. Um, what we didn't want was you know, something like that happening and the whole business sort of faltering because no one knew what to do. Yes. So it was a, a process we worked through and we had some, some very good help from civil aviation and, and the guys from civil aviation were great and they just sort of said well you're the customer, you tell us what you want. Yep. So we worked through and we finally got the certificate in time to to certify duty pays wings. So uh, so that was that was quite good for us and we actually retained that certificate all the way through until Steve and I purchased the business and uh, we didn't keep it on primarily because of the expense. We we had downsized staff numbers at that stage and didn't have enough staff to to uh, to pay for that overhead. <coughs> but we've kept. Um, We've kept that up. We've kept the, the structure of the business as per a one one four five organisation. So, if we do want to push the button and do it again, we're we're already halfway there. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, since um, since I've been here in two thousand and one, we we finished off um, Tony Banter's P forty. Uh, at the stage I arrived here, Dick Thurman's one had been done and, and disappeared off to the states. Yeah. Um, finished off Tony Banter's one and took that to Wanaka in two thousand and two. Yeah. Um, Warren and his crowd flew um, Jerry Yagan's one, which which we'd been you know instrumental in, in getting going, and uh, then finished off the LA9 um, right. for for Ray Hanner and, and Garth, and um, that was a you know a neat aeroplane which just really didn't get enough exposure I don't think, um, and nobody I don't think liked it. Well, everyone had a, a bit of a thing against it to start with because it wasn't really a war, you know, it wasn't a Second World War aircraft. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, you know, we seem to have in the ensuing 10 years we've moved on a bit from that and people recognised it was flown by a Soviet Air Force and the fact that it was 1947 or something that flew doesn't take away from the fact that it's a pretty impressive bit of kit. Oh, there we are. Um, but like I say, there, there seemed to be almost consumer resistance and it wasn't a real Second World War aircraft at the start. Yeah. Um, but you only have to see it once to, to get one over, generally. Exactly. Uh, and I, I talked to Keith Skilling about it, and he yeah. loved it. He yeah. loved flying it. Yeah, it was, I mean, I don't 
I don't know of anyone that uh, that that saw it that didn't like it, and I certainly didn't know of anyone that didn't fly it and didn't like it. Yeah. Um, they weren't always over the moon about the ground handling yeah. on it, yeah. uh, and it was almost too much power and too small a package, uh, is what it boiled down to. So, um, but it was it was a great aeroplane to be involved with, and it was um, it was a revelation to me and to you know the other guys working on it that. Um, how neat that Russian technology was. Uh, the, the, the things that the Americans achieved with, with half a dozen hydraulic rams and that, the Russians achieved with one arm and a tyre, you know, so when the, when the gear went up, it literally dragged all the doors up with it. There was no rams to shut anything. Right. It just, you know, lit the tyre the, the grabbed things and pulled it shut. It was really basic and, and bloody good, right. you know. Um, also, the the structure of the aircraft, there wasn't as much forging and casting. Um, there was a lot more welding. Um, so they'd made, made the components up out of individual items and welded them together rather than cast them or forge them in, in one. And it was just as it was in, in Russia at that time, some nasty buggers had gone through and bombed all their big factories, so you know you just didn't have that available to you. So you know, we did, we, we, we did the Lovotskin, we did uh, Alan Arthur's P40, um, the uh, the Yak 3 as well, which yeah. was a, an Allison powered Yak 3, which is still in, in Wanaka, owned by Arthur Dovey now. Yeah. Um, and then we did we finished off um, an aircraft that Mike Nichols had started, a, a P40 N5, um, and Mike had had it for quite a few years, and we um, we picked that up for him and finished it for Craig Schultz in Santa Rosa and uh, that aircraft um, I don't think it still hasn't flown Craig Craig wanted it didn't want us to test fly it here which was very unusual um, generally we we test fly them here and, and say yeah they're okay before we send them away yeah. um, but Craig definitely wanted to do all the test flying at his home base in Santa Rosa okay. So uh, it's still up there, and they're working through it, and they're going to get it flying one day. But I think it's been up there five or six years now. Oh wow! Yeah, he yeah. takes it out and ground runs it, and it's um, quite often parked in the in the front of his house and all that. So he's, you know, he he likes it. He likes yeah. having it. Yeah. Um, he's currently bought a stearman, so he's building up to flying it himself. So. Oh okay. Yep. Yep. So um, yeah, Craig is actually the the. The son of Charles Schultz, the Snoopy cartoonist. Oh, so it was, um, was, was interesting uh, when we first had that aeroplane, um, or before we got the aeroplane, I got, I got an email, a one-line email sent to me saying, got a P40 for sale. And that was all it said, Craig. And I went back and went, yep. So <laughs> I get this other email back, how much? So I went back and told him the price and he went, yep. Um, at about this stage, I'm thinking, okay, well, perhaps we better ring this guy. It's not just a, you know, I mean, the, the problem with emails, you don't know you're dealing with someone serious or with a seven-year-old kid sitting in front of his computer. <laughs> yeah. So about this stage, I rang up Garth. And I said, I think I might have someone interested in a P40. He said, what do you mean you think? I said, well, I'll send you the email trail. <laughs> you can have a read. And so the Garth come back and went, okay, well, give him a ring because he, he'd give me a phone number. Give him a ring and, and find out. So I rang up and had a, had a chat to this guy and, he seemed pretty serious, and um, he said, well, how do we do this? And I said, well, what we normally do is we come up with a contract, and we get it written up, and we fire it up to you, and 
you know, you approve it or change it and, and there's a bit of toing and froing and then we decide on where we're going to go and we go there. So um, I said, can I, you know, can I post the contract up to you? And he said, yes. I said, well, give me your address. And he said, one snoopy place. And about this stage, I thought, someone's having me on here. <laughs> this is a classic. <laughs> so I, I got off the phone, I rang Garfield and I said, you know, I, I don't know if he's having me on, but it, I said, his address is one snoopy place. <laughs> and he said, what's his name? I said, Craig Schultz. Garfield said, oh, OK. So about 20 minutes later, he rings me back and said, I Googled him. Shit, he'll be serious, all right. <laughs> so we thought, oh, okay. So you know, you know, well, I say we carried on. We built the aeroplane for him. We sent it up there, and it's good. Um, after that, we did the one for for Vintage Wings of Canada. Oh right, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, it's now now flying up in Canada. Going, to, they're in the middle of their season up there at the moment. I think they've been there summer, so they're they're getting a lot of fun out of that. I think. Yeah, that was a, a neat one because it was painted in. Was it Shorty Edwards? Stocky Edwards. Stocky Edwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was it, um, Stocky Edwards was one of the you know the, the big Canadian aces, uh, and is still alive today. Yeah, still around to see it. Yeah, and they so. decided to to paint the aircraft to uh, as, as tribute to him, which is, was really good. And um, so we had to um, when we painted it, we had to also put the flaws in the paint job that were in the original one. Ah, okay. Which which got a few comments, but. When you looked at the photos, that's how it was. Yep. Um, but the, I mean, that was a, that was a, a restoration of an aircraft that had been pulled out of Taji uh, at around the same time that CAG had come out, yep. or a similar sort of time. <clears throat> and um, it was uh, it was it was a different sort of aeroplane. We we actually had photos of that upside down, covered in foam, uh, on the day it crashed. Yeah. Um, and the day it, we test flew it here, the the wife and the grands, the son and grandson of the original pilot, were here to see the test flight, wow. the first test flight. Um, unfortunately, he passed away in the late '90s, so he wasn't here. Um, and that aircraft actually went to Canada in a Canadian Air Force C-17, which is something a little different. Yeah. Conventionally, we'd send aircraft around the world in 40-foot containers. Yep. And um, when we got sort of told. There's the opportunity it may go up in a C-17. We thought, oh yeah, okay, this will be a, a good one, but it actually happened. So um, it was interesting to be up at Fenuapai when the C-17 arrived, and the, the pilot of the C-17 came out and he came over to me and he says, you guys must have know, know some people in high places. He said, I've never heard of this happening before. Right. I said, well, I don't think it's who we know, it's who the owner knows. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, yeah, we loaded in. Um, the guys at Fenuapai were a great help, the air movements team up there, and off it went to Canada. Right, okay. So, uh, and of course, um, you guys developed the back seat um, model, didn't you? Yeah, that, look, that was, uh, you know, I can't take any credit at all for that. That was done before I got here, but um, I think, you know, the prime uh, the prime player in that, if you like, would have been Robert McNair. And, uh, and Rob, um, uh, along with Garth, sort of got in, and I think Garth said, this is what I want to do, yep. and, and Rob made it happen. Um, but yes, it's, it's um, we think it, it's a very good mod, um, and a lot of it, uh, a lot of the thinking in that mod came about through the crash of the the Wanaka um, P40, and uh, and the fact that if anyone's seen a, a photo of that after the crash, it literally had a an unzip here right through that rear seat area, um, 
because they'd taken structure out and they put the rear seat in, yeah. but they hadn't replaced any of the strength or any of the structure. So effectively, Rob came up with a, a sort of an egg-shaped 4130 tube cocoon, if you like. That so when you're sitting in the back, you you've got a roll bar over the top of you and an extra strengthening down the back and across the floor to replace the structure that was taken out. Okay. Um, and that wasn't done in that in that Wanaka aircraft. Now I think the mod for that was done in the States a few years beforehand. Um, so I think they looked at that and said, well, this is what we don't want to happen. Um, and at that stage, of course, they had the aircraft which had been purchased by Dick Thurman here. Yeah. Um, so they had it to look at and say, what you know, what do we have to do? Where, where do we have to put the strength back in? Okay. Um, and and we've, been, we've embodied that, um, that modification on most of the P40s since then. And it's, you know, it's worked very well. Um, we retrofitted it into 3009. Um, about 2005, something like that, when it, when it came back here. Yep. Um, and also in two, uh, 3009 was the first one that we put full uh, dual control in. Up until that point, it had just been a rear seat. Okay. Yep. So um, we then went back into CAG and put the dual control in that as well. Right. So that, that was, a, it was a, a fair bit of um, number crunching and involvement with the, um, with the engineers and slide rules and computers and came up with a test procedure to, to satisfy CAA that um, that rear seat mod was, was okay and the aircraft could and should be flown from back there. The good thing about it too is it, it doesn't affect the look of the aircraft, it, it doesn't look like it's been turned into a two-seater. Yeah, um, well I think you know the P40 is, is unique in having that capability because it's got um, you know the, the big clear vision panels at the back. Yeah. So it, unlike an aircraft that's got a sliding hood where you've got a, you know, you've obviously got two heads poking up and, and it's really hard to, to keep the line of the, of the sliding hood the same if you're going to put two heads up there. Yes. Um, so some of them do suffer so that, yeah, the P40 is quite unique in the fact that you can, you can hide it fully. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is really good in that respect, yeah. Right. Um, of course, another aircraft I remember seeing here that you guys had rebuilt was the um, Pilatus Porter. Yeah, we um, that was that was interesting in itself. It was a lot of grumblings and moaning from from everyone at Pioneer that a Porter wasn't really a warbird. Um, but when it came in, it was proven that it actually flown up in in Laos and in South Vietnam and it actually had bullet holes in it. Oh right, that everyone went, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, we really we just provided manpower for that. We didn't do the aircraft ourselves, okay. as, as such. So Andrew Wallace, who owned the aircraft, would drive up from Hamilton every day, and we'd lend him a couple of guys, and he'd manage the whole thing and, and looked after everything. Right. But it was a yeah. I mean, a, an aircraft only a mother can love. I think really, to be honest, that, yeah, not not my cup of tea. <laughs> um, very. You know they're very good performer because they're very lightly built, um, and uh, again, you know, don't buy an aeroplane off people that can't speak English. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yeah, two two thousand August two thousand and nine, um, Steve Cox and myself bought the business off Garth. Yeah. Um, look, the main the main driver for for that was that Garth said. I now live in Wanaka and I don't want a business in Auckland and if you guys don't want it I'm shutting up shop and we're all moving on 
and uh, I for one thought, shit, I'm too old to have to go and get another job. This is, this is too bloody hard. Yeah. Um, and so Steve and I got our heads together and, and we decided that there was quite a bit of history here at Pioneer and they'd done some pretty neat things and, and we'd like to try and carry that on. Right. So that was our naivety, if you like. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we jumped in boots and all and did that. Uh, and Garth has, has been, you know, fantastic in the transition. Um, we have been tardy in paying him what we owed him for the business. It hasn't been an issue with him. Um, so it's, uh, it's eased the transition somewhat. Um, so, yeah, the first, you know, first couple of years have been pretty tough. But I think you know, hopefully we can we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. um, and you know since then since we've taken over we've we've done certainly a lot of work for other people, um, piecemeal work as opposed to big project stuff, yeah. and I suppose the first the first big thing we had that's of any interest to anyone was the Blunty, right? When, when right. the Blunty came in up until then we'd just been doing odds and sods and a lot more maintenance work, yeah. um, so. Over the last two or three years, we've done most of the maintenance on both of the P40s and the Corsair as well. We picked the Corsair maintenance up, yeah. um, and and that may or may not continue. But we, you know, we're very pleased to have have done a bit of that. And it, it also, we've had guys, you know, in the shop that have done ten years nothing but rebuilding aeroplanes. So to do a little bit of maintenance was a really good change. You know, quite refreshing. So as, as well as enabling us to stay afloat, it's sort of you know giving you another perspective on what it's all about as well. Right, right. Um, but yeah, we got the, the Strike Master arrive um, on Christmas Eve, and we we allowed the owner to open the box and stick his nose in the door before we slammed it shut, stuck a padlock in it, and said, "See you on the 9th of January when we start work." <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was um, you know supposed to be just a. A quick bang the wings on it and get it flying job and it turned into something as they always do something a little bigger than that. Yeah. Um, so yeah the, the, the Blunty itself when we um, got it out of the box seemed to be in pretty good shape we put it all together and put some fuel in it and uh, ended up with a bit of a fuel leak from from one of the wings um, decided that we could live with the fuel leak we just stuck a bucket underneath it um, we decided it was British, and at that stage it wasn't leaking oil, yeah. so it was quite acceptable for it to leak fuel. Um, and then, as we were getting the, the aircraft together, we we jumped in and did a lacing wire inspection before we put the tailpipe on, and discovered that the lacing wire on the engine well, was broken at the rear of the engine. That in itself is uh, is cause for rejection of the engine. Um, and about the same time, we actually received the service bulletin that had been put out in 2002 that we were unaware of that said any 535 Viper engine in civilian service has a life of 1,000 hours. At that stage, that engine had done 1,400 hours. So there was a a brief moment of despondency from all involved, but mainly the owner, um, who after 20 minutes bounced back and started looking for another engine. So, uh, you know, we were fortunate uh, that that happened, so uh, sort of searched around the world, found an engine, and managed to get hold of a, a zero life engine that had been overhauled by Rolls Royce in the mid 90s and, and properly inhibited. Got it over here, stuck it in the engine, uh, in the aircraft, started it up, and it's just run like a Swiss watch ever since, so it's been really good. Yeah. Um, and in between times, we've, we've managed to 
to pluck up enough courage to fix the fuel leak, which uh, for those that have worked on strike masters in the past is one of the rubber bags or the, the joiner between two of the rubber bags, one of the joiners was just a bit loose. Um, and that sounds like a really easy job, it was only about two weeks work. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, but it's been, it's been a, a joy to maintain the Strike Master, really. We've had a few silly little electrical problems, um, which they had when, when they were in service with the RNZF, but yep. effectively uh, in the first year it flew uh, 53 hours, which um, which is pretty good for a you know private warbird, yeah. and yeah we just had a couple of niggling little problems which we've slowly got on top of. Um, the seats are disarmed; it doesn't have ejection seats in it. Uh, that's probably the big change from from uh, when the when the service was flying them. When I say it doesn't have ejection seats, the seats are still there, but they're not. The, the cartridges are removed, so the egress is just out via parachute. You know, jump out and and pull your ripcord. What about the, the um, canopy? Does that still the, the, the canopy still blows off, um, but it's not from cartridge, it's run from um, accumulator air pressure. And uh, the rationale behind that was if you were going to bang off your canopy, then you probably weren't going to put your wheels down and need any other hydraulic services. True. Um, <laughs> which is probably right. And I, and I must say it's a, it's a very, very good mod. It was designed uh, in Australia. And, uh, and even though it is Australian, it seems to be a good one, so we can, we can chalk that one up. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's unusual. It's been a bit of an eye-opener to us in a few respects. We had, um, at the same stage, we had the Strike Master in here, we had the Corsair in here. Now, the Strike Master effectively is a $100,000 warbird. Yeah. The Corsair is a close to $3 million warbird, and... It, it, to my mind, there's there's no, you know, no choice. You know, it's the course here every time. But we got more people coming in wanting to see the Strike Master than wanting to see the course here. We got more phone calls about the Strike Master than about the course here. And we got when we started a little Facebook page and started putting postings up on that, the interest in the Strike Master was far and above anything else. That's the course or P40s. Wow, that's amazing! Isn't it? And it, it, I think it's just a generation thing, is that people can remember Strike Masters, you know, going on the Falcons' roosts and flying around the country. Yeah, yeah. And uh, where of course he is almost abstract. You know, you only see it if you go to an air show. So that's the only thing I can put it down to. And the, and the amount of people that have popped their heads up out of the woodwork and said we used to work on on Strike Masters, well. There's probably a lot more ex Strike Master mechanics walking around now than there are ex Corsair mechanics. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a generation thing. It's a funny thing that um, I know I, I feel this, and I'm sure a lot of other Air Force people, when the Strike Masters left service, everyone was sort of oh, you know, good riddance to it. It's old yeah, and clapped yeah. out. But now when you see it, it's it's it just seems so much better yeah. to see one now than it did back then. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I I think you know the two things that. You know, I, I was there at the same time when they were getting rid of the Strike Masters, and, and we had this feeling that we were getting rid of something old and British, yeah. and getting something brand new, and and it looked like a you know a sharp thing, and it flew faster, and it was much more capable. Yeah. It didn't take many years for the disappointment to settle. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> yeah. And and the call of you know bring back the Blunty was was a, was a big one at a Haki. You know, people were you know spent days and nights trying to fix a Mackie, find a problem that wasn't there. Um, 
and you know some of the systems were you know very very complicated. The basics just the, the Stripe Master, very very basic aeroplane, easy to fix, and and also very easy for someone to know their way around. Right. You know, other than some of the the weird electrical stuff. You know. So um, so yeah, there was, there was that, but it is you know when it came back in. I mean, Brett came and saw us and said, I'm bringing in a Stripe Master, would you like to deal with it? And I thought, well, shit, how do I say, <laughs> what do I say to that? <laughs> you know, and the answer is yes, and, and, but I must say we really enjoyed having it. It's been a, been a really neat aeroplane, um, you know, to have here and to operate here. And, and, and the feedback has been, like I say, tremendous. Right. Um, and of course, you guys got some pretty good news last Friday, didn't you, about it? Yeah, well, we've had you know nothing but good news about the Strike Master. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Brett and and Dave Brown, who's effectively the, you know the chief pilot, um, have been working hard to get it on one one five so it can be used for adventure flying, and um, that came through last Friday. So that was a a, a big team effort, which which has paid off, um, and it'll be interesting to see where the whole adventure flying thing goes from now. You know, I mean, it, it means now we can advertise, yeah. and um, it may open the floodgates a little bit. But uh, basically, anyone that wants to ride in a Stripe Mask can now legally have one. And you guys are the first jet. Um... Well, we think we think we're actually the first aircraft. Um, I, I know that Peter Meadows in Tauranga has got a 115 certificate. I don't know what aircraft he's got on that certificate, if any. Right. And I don't know if he's actually taken any adventure flights. I, I you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely the first jet. Yes. Yeah. So, so that'll be that'll be good, and like I say, it's a, a bit of watch the space. Um, I mean, the ante may have to be upped a little as far as people walking in the back of Pioneer's hangar and tripping over airlines and that as they go out to the Blunty. That they might want a red carpet now. They're <laughs> going to have to pay for the flight. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the one one five thing is something that you know people have been working for years and years, uh, you know, twenty plus years, and it's been you know been promised and. And taken away so many times, so it's really good to see it's finally here and here to stay. Yeah. yeah. So. Just some um, before we move on from the Blunty, that there's another one that's going to be flying in Christchurch soon. Yes. Uh, and there's always talk around that more might come to New Zealand and that. And you know, it's, it's quite an exciting time, isn't it? Yeah. We've had a, a little bit to do with the one in, in, uh, in Christchurch, owned by Brian Hall down there, um, and and he's got. Um, a couple of guys from Air New Zealand working on it. Uh, one of them who's uh, Budgie Garner. Budgie did a fair bit of time when he was in the Air Force on, on 14 Squadron, so he's pretty familiar with the with the Strike Master. Um, and yeah, it's an ex Saudi or Omani one. I'm not sure. I always get those mixed up. Something like that. Yeah, um, and and it's got you know good fatigue, and I think it's Brian's intention just to fly it for his own personal satisfaction, basically. Yeah. He uh, doesn't have any intention at this stage of putting it on adventure flying. Right. Yeah. Uh, and as far as other ones, I mean, there are others for sale around the world. Um, you know, anyone looking at one need to be a bit careful because, as far as I know, the ones in the states haven't been maintained under the correct regime of um, fatigue monitoring. So I think that uh, penalty fatigue in that because they haven't been accruing it correctly, would probably mean that they shouldn't fly here. Okay. So as far as I know, it's um, you know if you want to buy a Strike Master, you buy it out of Australia, New Zealand, or the UK, and and leave the other ones alone. Okay.
I remember you telling me a while back about how much more economic they are to buy than a um, L39. Yeah, I mean, it's everything, I suppose the value equals out in the end, but a Strike Master, I think the one that's currently for sale, which is one, a sister ship to the one we have here, which is in Port Macquarie, I think it's around sort of 130,000 or something like that. Yeah. Um, now, an L39, I think, you know, they're sort of 350 or something like that, aren't they? Um, maybe yeah. even a bit more. So there's an initial saving there straight away. Um, I think they're a bit more expensive to run. They use a bit more fuel, but, you know, $200,000 worth of fuel is a lot of fuel. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, the Strike Master engine does, even under the current regime, does 1,000 hours. I think the L39 does 800 hours. So it's a swings and roundabouts thing. I mean, the L39 is a jet that, you know, if you took a pad along to a schoolboy and said, draw me a jet, he would draw something that's shaped like an L39, not something that's shaped like a Strike Master. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the Strike Master itself is, is a little bit higher in speed. It, it's faster. It doesn't look like it should be, but it is. Wow. Um, and the Strike Master we've got here has got, you know, full onboard oxygen, can go to uh, up to 30,000 feet. Okay. And I remember one of the things that you mentioned was when that L39's engine is Timex, yeah. getting another engine is going to be the cost of... Yeah, well, the same thing is a little bit with the Strike Master. You know, there's a limited amount of engines available in the world, um, and the price is going up and up. But I think the L39 engine is quite, quite a lot dearer than the Blunty one at this stage, yeah. Um, I, I, the problem comes when there are no longer any good zero-life or part-life engines available for the Strike Master, then, then there's some issues. Right. right. Um, because I'd hate to think what it'd cost to overhaul one. You know, yeah. you're, you're talking one to one and a half million plus, wow. I would imagine. Wow. So, so we better make the most of seeing them now. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, the one we've got here has done 84% fatigue, um, but under the current flying hours and the, and the, the way it's treated now compared to how the, the 17, 18 year old boys treated it in the Air Force, uh, it should last for about 50 to 60 years. Oh, great. great. So, so it's you know, quite a bit of flying, and the engine should last 20 odd years till it runs out of hours. So uh, we'll, we'll see it in the, in the skies for a few years yet. And it's had its paint touched up recently, too, isn't it? Yeah, we just basically did that in here. Um, it had uh, sponsorship from V for a while, so it had some stickers on it which were very polarising. People loved them or people hated them, there was nothing in between. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that was done obviously for, for finance and uh, it allowed, at the end of the day, it allowed the paint to get touched up when the stickers came off, so it was a means to an end. Yeah. Um, Personally, I quite liked it. I thought it looked quite striking. It, it certainly looked different. Yeah. 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 Um, it was a pain in the neck because with the, at that stage we still had the fuel leak and every after every flight we were out there with razor blades cutting stickers back and you know doctoring them, so it was a bit of a pain. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it looks pretty good now. It looks yeah. as the Air Force flew it now. Yes, it so does. It's back to, um, certainly not pristine, but it looks like you could park it out on the line and it wouldn't look out of place. Yeah, exactly. and, and that's how we want to present it. We don't want it shiny. We don't want to have chrome bits on it. It needs to be presented as the Air Force flew it, and I think it's a pretty good representation now. Yeah. Cool. And of course, the, your other big project at the moment is about to arrive, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, the exciting news for us after you know a, a lot of waiting is we, we finally got a, a big project. 
um, and at this stage it's arriving on the wharf in Auckland next Sunday and uh, it's a Hawker Tempest Mark II which is um, effectively the last of the of the Tempest breed if you like um, after that came the Sea Fury the Fury and the Sea Fury um, so the Tempest is the last of the aircraft that was built in, in, in the Hawker way of building them. It's the, right. the round tube with square ends and and all sort of riveted together. Um, so it's very very fam- very similar to, in construction to the Hind and the Hurricane uh, and the Typhoon. Um, but it, it was the last model of the Tempest and um, the, the cleanest of the breed. Right. So uh, that arrives yeah, next week and then we've sort of set ourselves roughly two years to get it back flying. So it's a, it's a Bristol Centaurus powered one, um, which is, has invoked a lot of comment. A lot of people would like to see a Napier, um, Napier Sabre engine one. Uh, the reality of keeping one of those Napier Sabres going is, uh, is, is beyond mere mortals at this stage. Yeah. So um, we would think that, you know, you, you would be lucky to get 50 to 100 hours out of one of those engines, so you're going to be rebuilding the engine continually. Yeah. Um, where the, the, the Mark II or the Bristol Centaurus, the Centaurus is a, a, a very good engine. Um, seen here, last seen here in, in the Sea Fury. Um, a great thing, neat sounding engine, two and a half thousand horsepower, so you know, plenty of power. Um, so we're hoping we can, we can get one of those engines together to, to stick on the front of this thing. It's going to be great. And uh, I mean, the, 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 the thrill for us, or one of the thrills for us, is that the aircraft is going to stay here at Ardmore. So yeah. it's not one of those aircraft we're going to build and do, you know, 10 or 20 hours and then wave goodbye to it forever. Yeah. It's, uh, it's going to be here in our faces and, and flying out of Ardmore. Now, at this stage, we think that's good. <laughs> maybe maybe once we've discovered the Britishness of it, <laughs> we'll think it's bad. I don't know. But. But it is, uh, it's, it's a really neat thing and uh, of course a lot of Kiwis flew the Typhoons and the Tempests and um, the owner, he is uh, keen on, on doing this aircraft to honour those those people. Right. So at this stage is going through all sorts of paint schemes and, and uh, checking identification markings and things like that. We have tentatively reserved the registration TMP. Okay. Um, so we, we have that, but there are some other options that we're looking at at the moment. Um, so at, at this stage, unfortunately, there's only two uh, ex-Tempest pilots that we know know of that are still alive. Um, right. And we're hoping to have both of those gentlemen here middle of next month to reacquaint them with the aeroplane. Oh, cool. So they've been in contact with, with both of them, which is Jack Stafford in, in Rotorua and Harvey Sweetman from Devonport. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and they're both pretty keen to come down and meet each other again and and, uh, and jump in the aeroplane. So cool. it gives us about three weeks to give it a bit of a tart up and, and that uh, before they arrive. So that'll be that'll be really good. That'll be a hell of a day, won't it? It will be. It will be a great day. So um, you know, I'm sure that um, this time next week, when the when the container arrives, we'll sort of look at it and go, "Oh my God, what have we let ourselves in for?" Um, <laughs> But um, at the moment, everyone's pretty excited that, that that's coming. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's got to be one of the biggest pieces of news that's come out in Warbirds this year, hasn't it? When that well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, 
it's you know it's pretty big. Yeah. Um, and, and and the interesting thing with the aircraft is it's a it's an XRAF ex Indian Air Force one, and uh, was taken back to England in the late seventies. I think there were seven or eight of them bought out of India in the late seventies, taken back to to England, and none of them are flying yet. Right. And it, it's, it was almost like no one knew how to categorise them because there was a feeling that they didn't fly in the Second World War, so therefore they're not a warbird. Much the same as the Lavochkin, I think. Right. Um, but the one that we're getting actually flew in 1944. Okay. Um, and was the, the second Tempest built by Bristol Aircraft. And we think the second Tempest, Mark II that is, uh, ever built and actually went to the handling flight and the pilot's notes for the Tempest II were written off this particular aircraft. Oh, right. So while it didn't see combat during the war, it flew during the war. Um, and, you know, to be honest, that's as good as quite a few of the Spitfires and Mustangs flying around the place as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so I think, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's a genuine warbird and, it, you know, the, the lineage is, is indisputable, um, you know, back to the Typhoon and, and stuff like that. So it's a pretty neat aeroplane. Definitely. And, uh, and it was, was really... Again, funny old thing, dogged by politics. Um, there were certain people in, in England that didn't want to see round engines and, and tempests, and they made sure it didn't happen. Didn't happen, even though the aircraft designer wanted a, the Centaurus in it from day one. Okay. Um, but, uh, so when, when they finally put it in, they said, "Actually, this works really well, and it's um, it's better and faster than it's ever been before." So. And a you know pretty neat looking thing, but it, it yeah, obviously doesn't have that big distinctive um, radiator underneath. So uh, it's the only thing we're going to be missing, maybe, maybe. So yeah, it'll be, it's going to be the next couple of years going to be an adventure with that. So that's uh, that's going to be exciting. But um, you know, as well as that, we've um, certainly over the last couple of years we've we've diversified and and maybe built things that we we wouldn't have done in the past. We're, we're currently assisting a local guy here to build a, a beer hawk which is a, a little piper cub come satabria sort of aeroplane yep. um, and um, you know when we were flat out building warbirds we wouldn't have looked at one of those but it's again it's been quite a quite a nice change for us currently building a, a, a t-51 titan yep. um, which which again is not everyone's cup of tea but will be a, a great little aeroplane those of you the you know the people that have seen um, Marty's one flying down at the Taron with a Honda V6 in it. It's um, it's a pretty impressive little aeroplane, and this one's going to have that same engine. Right, right. So, so but those, those things have really grown on me. Yeah, when I first saw yeah. the Titans, I didn't think much of them, but I really like them now. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know the ones that are built well and, and that are going to be a good aeroplane. Yeah. You know, so um, we put a lot of strengthening in our one that um, hasn't been done outside the factory before. Uh, we started off with, a, with an early kit and we've turned it into a, a, a strength and late model kit. Yep. Um, so hopefully it'll, you know, the, the owner who's in Australia, hopefully get good service out of that for the next few years. Cool. Mm. Okay. So, um, I mean, it, 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 it goes to say, well, it goes without saying that, you know, the whole thing's a team effort. And, um, and I've, I've been really lucky, you know, when I was in the Air Force and, uh, and, and here at Pioneer that, just had good people, you know, and, and nobody can do anything individually here. Um, although people like Don Sarewitzki continually surprise me, <laughs> uh, but but it, it is a team, you know, whether you've got one person working with you or a, a couple, 
uh, or a, you know, or a number. It's you're only as good as the people you've got working with you, and, and that's one thing you sort of learn over the years. I don't think you appreciate it fully at the start. <clears throat> I think um, you know the further down the chain you are, the, does that sort of realize or, or sort of thought that you know all your bosses are idiots, yeah. and then all of a sudden you are one. <laughs> and, you, and you think shit you know I thought I had bad, bad bosses before and now I work for myself and I'm even worse off <laughs> but you know I've, I've been really lucky to, to rub shoulders and, and bump into you know under people uh, all the way through my Air Force career and, and certainly here in in, uh, in Civvy Street and I think you know a lot of people on Ardmore when I first arrived you know he's another Air Force bastard <laughs> and it, to a certain extent, you've got to sit back and shut up, which hasn't come easy for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, you know, those people that knew me in the Air Force knew that I quite often like to have my say, whether rightly or wrongly. And, uh, and every now and then, you just got to bite your tongue and go along with it. But um, you know, I think that you, you generally you get accepted for for what you do and what you achieve, and and just longevity. Um, so if you hang around long enough, people grudgingly accept you after a while. <laughs> and, I, and I honestly think that's where I am now. You know, you know, oh, he's still around after ten years. He must be all right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, I mean, guys, you know, guys in the Air Force, like you know, like Pedro Comeski and and, uh, and people like that that I work with, Jim Hyde, who who um, who followed Pedro at the historic flight, guys like that who just got on and did it. You know, and. Uh, and prove to you that you didn't have to yell and scream and, and that if you just stuck your head down and, and shut up and did it, you achieved a lot, you know. And in, in early years, guys like Jim Fordyce, who was on the on the six two six, you know, it was a a revelation to me to see a guy make something out of nothing. Yeah. You know, and Jim was just one of those guys that could could do anything, and and had the attitude that he could do anything as well. You know, wouldn't be told by anybody that it can't be done. Right. Wouldn't accept that just flat out refuse to accept anyone saying you can't do it that way. You know, they come back a week later and he would have proved them wrong. And uh, and I think that's a bit of a Kiwi trait, you know, and, and maybe that's why we sort of punch above our weight with the Warbird scene is that maybe we're too dumb to read the book to say it can't be done. You know, <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't got that book here. It's just, well, shit, if I want one of those, I've got to build it. And um, I suppose we're lucky, you know, very lucky here in Auckland that we have available a, a huge amount of technology, you know, in, down in East Tamaki, the, the machining facilities and the fabrication facilities available to us. If we can't do it here yeah. on site, there's a huge amount available to us there. And we have people who think now, uh, and it's quite different to it was 20 years ago, I think, that um, we can do stuff one-off now. And, uh, and I think part of that's the old super yacht thing has everyone's different to the next you know you're not doing a run of 100 yachts of the same yeah um so when they're building these you know the america's cup boats or something like that people are, are sort of more geared now to do one-off stuff than they were a few years ago where they wouldn't accept runs of less than 100 yeah so um there's all that sort of stuff but you know but just the like i say the people that i've, I've met and rubbed shoulders with it's been a you know real honor to to meet them and uh and it's sort of uh it's been an interesting ride, you know. And, and would you do things differently if you did it again? Of course you bloody would, you know. <laughs> it's a whole lot of bollocks. Everyone says, oh, no, I wouldn't change a thing. You, you'd change a lot of things, but whether they'd turn out as well in the end, you don't really know. I mean, it's all about luck and timing as much as anything. 
Absolutely. So, yeah. so it's just you know, I'm just you know, lucky to fall on my feet, I suppose. I think um, it should be said too that the Warbird fans like myself and the Warbird yeah. collectors and everyone out there are lucky to have places like Pioneer and um, people like yourself who are. Um, yeah. You know, willing to give it a go and, and, and make these one-off things and, and do the things that everyone says are impossible. Yeah, well, well you know, there's that, I suppose, and, I mean, I always think, like to, to give people a time of day. You know, you know that's, um, to me, that's really important. And, and you know, every, everyone as a kid remembers leaning on a fence, be it at a horse races or the motor races or somewhere like that, and and trying to talk to one of these people and, and getting brushed off. Yeah. And, and it would disappoint me to... To think that I'd ever done that to someone, and I'm sure I have, but it wouldn't have been intentionally. It would have been in the middle of a Wanaka air show when the Lavochkin rudders just fallen to bits, and <laughs> you know, and something like that's happened. Yeah. And and I suppose you can understand now why maybe when you lean on that fence and you got the brush off, you know, why it happened. Yeah. You know, maybe you were there at the wrong time, but certainly I, I like to think that we're you know pretty approachable and. Um, it, you know, it gives you a bit of a buzz to have people walk in the door and have a look around and ask some questions and. And then to get an email back saying, "Hey, thanks for showing me around." You know, had a, a young guy from Singapore out last year, and um, he just came in and he's it was a warbird nut, and uh, he wanted to take photos and have a look around. And uh, at that stage, we were out running, going to go out and run the P40. So I said, "Are you interested in coming out with us?" On the end, he couldn't believe it. We stuck him in the back seat, oh, wow. and and he was just blown away. And I got. I've had emails from him since, you know, saying that was the highlight of his trip to New Zealand. Was was sitting in the back seat of the kitty hall when you're doing the engine run. Fantastic. You know, and it didn't. It was no skin off our nose to do that. Yeah. You know, and and that and that's you know I like to think that's the approach we use is if someone comes in. Um, but it's it is a it's a fine line between people that are, a, you know, some people can be a nuisance. Yeah. Um, so they don't tend to get the same reception. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, you know, generally we have you know we have quite a few people that pop in once a month and just you know walk around and wave and walk out, and you know I'm quite happy with that. You know? Right. So it's good to see people interested in what you're doing, yeah, yeah. and you know, and one of the things you know I think about, you know, sometime over the last you know sort of ten years or something when things haven't been going that well and you get a bit of downer on, is um, you know the day that I come to work and think I'm not doing something pretty special, should be the day that I don't bother coming to work again, you know. Right. And I've sort of said that several times to the guys working here, you know, to you know, just step back and think what you're working on and think how many other people might like to have that job, Yeah. you know. And so, you know, just what you're doing here is pretty pretty special. There's not many people in the world that are doing it and, and you know, we need to keep that there as well. But, I mean, the other thing I suppose that, that appeals to me about this business is I've always liked history and, you know, what's happened in the past and... You're just living it every day here. You know, you're fully immersed in it. So, so that's pretty neat in itself. Absolutely. You know, so. Uh, and not only are you living with the past history, but you're creating history as well. Yeah, you? yeah. I mean, and, and keeping it going. You know, yeah. and, and uh, not so much now, but you know, certainly when I started here ten years ago, we used to get a lot of people saying, "Oh, it just seems a shame to fly them." You know, you put all this work into them and they could crash. Yeah. Well, the only reason that people are interested in them is because they fly. Yeah. You know, there's there's the the two percent that may be interested in one sitting in a museum, and I'm interested in them sitting in a museum, but I'm only interested because I've seen them fly or I know they can fly. Yes. If they were just a static exhibit, you know, and, and I'd never seen one move, I wouldn't be that interested. 
Exactly. So, you know, part of the, the whole sort of war bird and the air show scene is to fly the flag, if you like, to keep the keep them in front of people's noses. And as long as we can do that, you know, that's and one of the reasons we've got such a good warbird scene here is obviously guys like Tim Wallace who you know, woke up one morning and decided what he was gonna do and and, and went out and did it. Yeah. And I'm sure there were people plenty of people say, You can't do that. Yeah. Wanaka, you gotta be bloody joke. You know, no one's gonna go down there. Well, you know, the rest is history as they say, isn't it? So, Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and you know, we went to the last Wanaka air show and I think that's the second one now that or might be the first or second that, that Tim hasn't been involved with and and you know, it's as as good as it's ever been. It's a good place to go. And there was, you know, several people grizzling that didn't feel the same and and I thought it was run well and it was a superb show and certainly from our point of view this year was, was great because there was no bloody wind and no dust. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't eating it. So, yeah. so you know, yeah, I mean it's nice to see that think that the warbird scene's alive and well. And, you know, the the collection at Alpine Fighter is fighters is gone but there is more warbirds in New Zealand than there's ever been before. Exactly. That, you know, so so they're not in all one place now, they're spread around a bit. Yeah. You I know. Mean, that that um, Alpine collection was a catalyst for everyone else to get into it, I think, wasn't it? And it certainly was a huge driver, yeah. I think, you know. And and I know, you know, people like Garth, you know, and Garth said that he went down to the, the Wanaka Air Show and, and he, he you know, he said to Mark Hanna, Well, what would it take for me to, to fly one of those things? And that was his catalyst for getting a, a kitty hawk right. um, was was Mark Hanna saying, "Yep, you could fly that, you could fly that thing." Wow! I mean, wow! Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, Garth was Garth's in a fortunate position where he had an aeroplane and the kitty hawk that had less horsepower than some of the cars he's driven, so right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a big deal to him. Um, but I mean, it's you know, people like you know, like Mark taking time to talk to Garth and and that and that and that, like I say, that's really important that. You know, you, you give people a time of day, you don't dismiss them. Because as soon as, if someone comes in here and, and they leave with a bad experience, that's not just Pioneer that's in a bad light, it's the whole Warbird scene, they're all a pack of bastards. Yeah. You know, and we don't want to go there. That's one thing I can, I can honestly say about Ardmore, all around Ardmore. Yeah. I found it so welcoming, so yeah. open. People don't mind if you go and watch them fly. Yeah. You know, people don't mind if you wander into a hangar and ask yeah. questions. It's great. And, and, and so many people from overseas who I've brought out here or I've talked to who have been yeah. out here, they all say, you just can't do that overseas. You just can't yeah. do it. Yeah, I, know, I mean, we're, it is a unique situation. I mean, it's not an international airfield for a starter, so we don't have the security. Right. In um, saying that, there is you know, reasonably good security on the field. But, you know, when I came up here uh, in 2001, I got, you know, 10 million Jaffa jokes. You yep. know, as you'd expect, yep. um, and and I came here not really knowing what to expect, and again I found everyone to be you know really friendly and accommodating, which which makes things easier. Yep. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great place to be. Um, I mean, certainly looking out the front of the hangar is nicer than looking out the front of an industrial unit at a motorway or a, another industrial unit looking back at you. Exactly. So it's a it's a it's a, it's a nice place to work. It's a nice environment. And you know, yeah, I think you know, as a as a whole, um, it's a, it's a good place, and people get a good reception here, which is you know what you try and foster. Yeah. And for people like you and me who are interested in warbirds, I mean, just take a look around. You've got so much going on here at the moment. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, it seems to be certainly one of the places um, that's that's on the up and up as far as the warbird scene goes. I mean, Tauranga is the other obvious 
yeah. place, you know, and it and it it obviously just needs one or two drivers, you know, Andrew down at Taronga and and uh, and the Warbirds here, you know, Frank yeah. Frank and his team over there, yeah. and um, there's certainly when I first came here in 2001, I you know I went over the Warbirds hangar there and it was an old cold hangar, it was dark um, and full of Harvards and birdshit, yeah, you know, and it. It really wasn't anything that flash, and when you took people over there to show them around, it was almost a bit embarrassing at times. Um, it, I, it's not the case now. Right. It's, a, it's a, a really nice place to go. It's a beautiful environment. Um, so you know that they've upped their game a little, and it and it shows. It really shows. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but yeah, the you know the variety of aircraft available here on the field is is, is pretty stunning for a, a little place. Yeah, and there's so much more to come to with the yeah. mosquito to fly soon and yeah well I mean the, the mosquito is certainly the you know the big deal of the decade isn't yeah. it almost you know not, yeah. I was going to say the year but um, it, it transcends that and everyone you talk to um, you know when you're talking to people overseas you can't get a phone call through without someone asking about the mosquito right everybody knows about it all around the world yeah. and it's fantastic and it's you know focusing the interest here at Ardmore which is which is great for us yeah yeah um, so yeah, that is you know that is a really big deal, um, but no, the, I mean the whole the whole Warbird scene here is good, um, and um, yeah, I mean we always have the the issues with egos and, and that, and you know I hazard to say when you've got pilots you've got egos, you know that's just <laughs> get over it, get used to it. Yeah, yeah. But um, but you know we we're, we're uh, fortunate here at the moment that we have a fantastic client base. Um, we we get on with the people that we work for, yeah. and and hopefully they get on with us, and uh, and that's really important. You know, I mean, you can't start on you know two year projects um, and have question marks about who you're dealing with. You know, you have to be pretty confident that at the end of two years you're still going to be talking. Yeah. So it's uh, you know that's important in itself. But it, it's interesting. We we purchased the hangar next door um, about six years ago now, and when we got in and decided we we're going to give it a bit of a clean-up, <clears throat> we, we got in behind the paint booth and on the back wall was the fire orders for RNZF Station Ardmore. Wow. Actually on the old paper, it was just paper unfortunately, it was all poor, falling to bits. Yeah. But it was on the old the old Bander machines, remember those Gassetna? Oh yes. I think, we had purple, purple ink yep. Well, yep. it had been copied on one of those and it was taped on the wall at the back. <laughs> so you know, this is one of the one of the original um, hangars built in 1943, 44 by the U.S. Army Air Corps, yep. or the Marines, or whatever. Well, yeah, it was actually built for the Navy, but uh, it was built by yeah. the Zealand government. So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so these were built. You know, these are the original hangars, and we're still working on today rebuilding Warbirds. So there's something something pretty good in that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, you're in a, such a historic environment. Yeah, in this place, and for so many reasons, not just the the war and all the things that happened with the air force there, yeah. but like it's a Formula One track just out there. Yeah, and yeah. All well, these other things that happened here. My father was here in 1953, 54, I think, or 52-53 as a teacher's training college when right. I was here. Right. So he was he was one of the crew that was here. Right. So it's been through a few incarnations, you know, certainly since it was built in the during the war. Yep. Yep. Um, and I've got a quite a famous picture of a Corsair circling above Ardmore was taken from above the Corsair and you can quite clearly see these three hangars yes yeah in the background which is pretty neat I know that photo and outside of the the sort of boundary of the station 
there's yeah. just nothing. There's no yes. houses or nothing anything at all. No, no. Farms. no. And, and you know, it's a pity it's not like that today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I've got just two more questions to ask yeah. you before we sort of um, yeah. finish here. Of all the aircraft that you've worked on so far in your career, which has been your absolute favourite? Look, I, I really don't think I've got one, Dave, to be honest. Um, and, and, I mean, I've enjoyed them all. Um, except for probably the Mackie. I didn't like the Mackie. Right. Um, you know, I appreciated it for what it was, but certainly to work on it, I never liked it at all. I never got any sense of satisfaction out of doing anything else. So I suppose what I'm saying is I haven't got a favourite, but I've got a, a, a least favourite, yeah. if you like. But the rest of it, they've all all been different in their own ways, you know. And, and sometimes you don't appreciate it at the time. You know, I mean, when I worked on the Dakotas, they were old and moving on, and I couldn't wait to move on to an Andover. And when I got to the Andover, I wanted the Dakota back. Yeah. And, and it was the same with the Blunty. You know, you're working on the Blunty and then the Mackie arrives and, and then you want the Blunty back. You know, the, the difference being is I've got the Blunty back this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I suppose that, that's a wishy-washy answer. But, um, and, and I, you know, to be honest, I remember the people as much as the aeroplanes. Yeah. When I think of an aeroplane now, I think of the people that I worked with at the time. And it, uh, it's a funny old thing. It must be something to do with ageing, I think. <laughs> Your memories of what happened, you know, 30 years ago are sharper than what happened yesterday. Yeah, yeah. My, my other question was, um, of all the sort of warbirds out there, is there a particular one that you'd like to rebuild that you haven't yet? What, a particular type? What, Tempest? <laughs> I could, you know, to be honest, you know, and, and, and I, I certainly wouldn't have said that six months ago. But... Um, we are we're absolutely itching to get into that now. Yeah. Um, and, and and the more we've sort of researched it, and the more we found out about the, the airplane and the airframe and uh, and the people that flew it, um, we are really keen to get it flying. You know, to honour those honour those Kiwis. You know, the, the four eight six guys and that, that that flew the typhoons and the tempests. Yeah. And uh, and we see this as as a way of doing that, and I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully it'll all work out for us. Yeah, and we'll certainly keep in touch and, and yeah. have some updates on that in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sitting down and uh, doing this amazing interview. It's been yeah, great. Well, I, you know, I hope I haven't bored you too much. Not and, at and all. Like I say, I yeah, uh, you know, I just I, like I say, I think back about the you know people I could have I could have sat here for the whole sort of couple of hours and just and talk people and, and you know maybe that's another one. Yeah. Because um, yeah. you know some of the ex Air Force guys that I've met again in civilian life who've. Uh, Caused me to smile again when I meet them, and you know, guys like Gunnar Ashford and and that who I didn't know that well in the Air Force, but I've got to know him a fair bit better um, with working through the guns with CAG oh, yes. and the live firing and stuff like that. Yep. yep. Um, you know, but there's, there's yeah, lots and lots of names of people that uh, and, the, and the associations with the aeroplanes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks, Paul. It's hey, not great. a problem, Dave. Cheers. Good. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.